Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Our speaker this evening obtained his Master's of Divinity and a Master's of Arts degree in Moral Theology from Mount St. Mary Seminary in 1989 and was ordained to the priesthood the same year. Monsignor Pope, very fitting for our tonight's event, by the way, has... <laughs> has served at uh, several parishes in the Archdiocese of Washington and was named a Monsignor in 2005 by Pope Benedict XVI. Monsignor Pope currently conducts a weekly Bible study at the White House. And <laughs> I didn't put them up to that. I didn't, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and acts as the Archdiocesan Coordinator for the celebration of the extraordinary form of the Mass. He has served as pastor of Holy Comforter St. Cyprian Parish in Washington, D.C. since 2007. I normally finish this by saying please join me in welcoming, but I think tonight I'll act completely stupid and say, Abemus Papam. <laughs> Do not be afraid. <laughs> yeah, the gentle voice of uh, Pope John Paul II. You know, I, I, uh, I, yeah, just one clarification. I, I, I've had those opportunities in the past. I did the Bible study in the White House for like five years, but that was under a previous administration. So, but I, uh, but I have. Um, anyway, you know, you you got to know somebody on the inside to be able to do it. All right. Well, listen, um, maybe just a couple do, couple things do kind of lurk in the background in a good sense uh, tonight. And one of them is just this the beautiful canonization. I know you were all up at four watching. Uh, <clears throat> but I would say that um, a little story about Pope John Paul, St. John Paul, and uh, a bishop that I knew rather well, Bishop Eugene Marino, told this story to me and uh, so, so, some other priests. And... Um, some of you may remember Bishop Marino. He had been an African-American bishop in D.C. for many years, and he was then appointed the Archbishop of Atlanta. And sadly, uh, the Archbishop had a fall from grace. He had become intimate with a woman briefly, only briefly, and then it ended, but she came public, and so he stepped down. And um, he was called to Rome uh, to finalize his um, resignation. And the Pope asked to see him, St. John Paul, and he was quite anxious, as you might understand. You know, he was called into the Pope's private study. And um, all the other aides and those crazy monsignors that hover around were all gone. It was just just the Archbishop, and in walked St. John Paul. And uh, he came up to him, and again, very anxious, Marino, Bishop Marino was, given the circumstances. And um, he was prepared with a speech to say how sorry he was, and... At the end, of the, the Pope came across the room and he did that big bear hug, you know, the big talking by the shoulders and that fine Polish tradition. And, and he looked at him and he said, are you at peace? And that was a beautiful story that always moved the 
Bishop Marino to tears, and it was clear to everyone the bishop had to step down, but uh, he then went on to do private retreat work with that encouragement from, from Pope St. John Paul, and um, uh, so again, those are just, just a beautiful story of that kind of clarity and firmness, but also that great pastoral solicitude that, that uh, St. John Paul had. Another thing that's looming in the background that, that on this particular talk that I'm giving is that there is this um, gospel that we had today on Doubting Thomas Sunday, Mercy Sunday. And I don't know about you, but <laughs> they say Jesus is alive, he, and he's, 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 he's going to be seeing us any moment now. And these, all these guys have run, you know, <laughs> they, they, they abandoned him, you know. So they're probably, you know, a little anxious, and the Lord says something very similar to what the Pope said, right? Peace be with you. So, Divine Mercy Sunday. But also, there is this image that one apostle was missing that first Sunday, and that was Thomas. And because of that, we have an expression in the black church. I, I've been pastor of black parishes most of my priesthood, all 25 years almost, and... Um, uh, we have an expression, don't block your blessings. Don't block your blessings. And Thomas had blocked his blessings because he did not gather with the faithful. And so he missed. He missed that first appearance of the Lord and that great salutation, peace be with you, shalom. And so we don't know why Thomas missed them, but he was absent. And only when he gathered again the following Sunday was he able to meet the Lord. Uh, the Lord didn't give him a private visit. He, he waited for Thomas to gather with the community. And that very following Sunday, Thomas gathered. And again, he finally got that salutation, shalom, hmm? peace. There is now peace between you and my Father, between you and I. And so this beautiful image then of the, the essential need for us to gather every Sunday with God's faithful and to not block our blessings. There are just blessings that you get at Mass that you can't get anywhere else. And I'll talk a little bit about that as the talk unfolds, but I'm just going to say that there are a lot of people today who have this notion that they can have Jesus without the church. And no can do. No can do. You cannot have Jesus without the church because that's like trying to have a person's head without their body. Now that's either gross <laughs> or is dead. <laughs> you know, a, a head without a body is, is dead, see? And, and it's also a, a very un, unnatural. And so, but there's an awful lot of people that speak that way about the church. You know, I, I, I like Jesus, but I can't stand the church. You know, imagine if I came to you and I said, well, you know, I, th I think you're just swell. I think you're a great person. I just can't stand your disgusting, awful body. <laughs> if only you didn't have a body. <laughs> You know, your hideous, awful, stench-filled body. I just can't stand it. And so you see, again, people, people talk like that, but the church is the body of Christ, you see. And you can't have Jesus without his body. And you, in, in a very theoretical sense, but not really. And the offense that the Lord must take, and also another image of the church is that the church is Christ's bride. You know, I love you, but I just can't stand your wife. Get her out of here. I don't ever want to see her face. How would you feel, you see? And yet, many people speak of the church that way. I, I know many of them have been hurt. Many of them have struggled. But at the end of the day, we've got to begin to get our mind around this understanding that to gather with the faithful on Sunday is not simply a bunch of people getting together. It is the body of Christ. It is where we encounter 
the, the Lord. It is, if you will, what is the church? The church is the ongoing, active, vital, living presence of Jesus Christ in the world. It is his body, active and present. He still speaks. He still works miracles. He still feeds. He still forgives. He's doing all of that in his body, the church, all of us members of that body. So this gathering isn't just some sort of fellowship of human beings. It is that. We're all members of Christ. It is the, it is the body of Christ. St. Augustine says that at the end of time, and, and Jesus hands over the whole kingdom to his Father, he simply says there will be unus Christus amon se ipsum, one Christ loving himself. See, all of us, members of the body of Christ, in this amazing work of love that we call the body of Christ, the church. So again, I would simply say those, those two stories kind of lurk in the background today. Uh, the canonization of St. John Paul and John the 23rd, and then also we have the, uh, this beautiful gospel that is given to us today. And again, a simple message, don't block your blessings. You're not going to encounter the risen Christ the way you should if you absent yourself from the faithful gathering with God's faithful, namely his body, the church. We have this uh, document that uh, Pope uh, John Paul, uh, St. John Paul, gave us back uh, many years ago now uh, called Dies Domini. And although it has that title Dies Domini, it, it actually has several a number of component parts. And we're not going to go through that page by page. That is not my approach tonight. But I would say that uh, just a real quick overview of the document itself is helpful. He speaks, of course, of the Dies Domini. And he goes back to the Old Testament roots and speaks of this great day of the Lord. Uh, the, remember to keep holy the Sabbath of the Lord. You see? So the great day of the Lord. But in the New Testament, of course, we move to Sunday. And it's because not that we are ignoring the commandment, but that we are fulfilling the commandments. We're not just called to keep commandments. We're called to fulfill them. And therefore, as Christ rises from the dead on the eighth day, um, uh, not, not simply the first day, but also the eighth day, the fulfillment, if you will, he made all things well. And then there was creation and there was a kind of a decreation through sin and now a great recreation on the eighth day when Christ stepped out of the tomb. So now it becomes the Dies Christi, the day of Christ, you see. And it also is a Dies Ecclesia. It's the day when the church gathers as his body, Christ's body. And there we assemble. Uh, you heard today uh, in the first reading, uh, in the ordinary form of the Mass, is, was the, the reading from Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to uh, the prayers, to the breaking of the bread, uh, and to the fellowship. Those four fundamental pillars of the Christian life, right? The, the, what, what, what did they devote themselves to? Well, first of all, uh, the Word of God. We, we would say, the, they say the, the, the teachings of the apostles. That's the Scriptures, you see? Be sure you're deeply rooted in the Word of God and the teachings of the church. Likewise, they devoted themselves to the prayers, both communal and personal. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, which is, of course, the Eucharist, but also, by extension, all the sacraments. And then the fourth pillar is, again, this understanding of fellowship. And please, don't reduce it to donuts and coffee. I mean, this is a deep, rich word in the Greek, koinonia. There's this deep communion wherein we, 
uh, as are deeply rooted in communion with Christ, and in that deep communion, we have a fellowship where we walk with each other, we support each other, encourage each other, all the members supporting all the other members, uh, holding each other accountable, just the way all the members of your body work together for the good of the whole. So all of us walk in this deep communion and fellowship. So we have the Dies Domini, which becomes the Dies Christe and the Dies Ecclesiae, and also though the Dies Hominis. It's, it's a day for the human person. It's not, as Jesus often had to remind them, the Sabbath was made for man, not against him. You know, all your rules and sometimes, oh, the things that the ancient Jews would do, and even to this day in many ways, do to each other over Sabbath rules. And you, so you see, again, we have to understand rest, family time, a day for worship is part of human dignity. It's part of justice. It's part of the social teaching of the church. And then, of course, dies dierum. It is the day of days. Sunday is the first day. It's the eighth day. It is the pinnacle. It's the fulcrum. It is the day of days. It is that final day that we'll be ushered into in heaven, the, where there's just one day, one day, and the sun never goes down. And so all of those are ways of quickly summarizing what Pope St. John Paul is teaching us. Now with that in mind, I want to take up some of those themes that he covers in my own little outline here. So if you have that one-page outline entitled Dies Domini, the Day of the Lord, I'd like to begin to um, go through it with you. Now, of course, uh, the, our understanding of Sunday as both a day of prayer and a day of rest obviously goes back into the Old Testament and to the Ten Commandments, and especially then to the Third Commandment. Again, there is this commandment, and I just summarize it there for you um, in Acts 20 and verse 8. There's another version of it as well, but let's just read the one from Acts 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Now, six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do, not any, you shall not do no sort of work, neither shall your son, your daughter, your male or female servant, your animals, any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, holy, of course, as most of you know, means doesn't just mean, you know, like really nice. I mean, it means set apart. It means distinct. It means it's a day different from other days, you see. And of course, in our culture, we've now struggled. Some of you are older than I am in this room, and some of you aren't. But I'm just old enough to remember the days when Sunday was a really different day in this country, even just secular. Almost everything was closed. Remember those days, you know, the, they, they called them blue laws. Blue laws. You know, it's got to sneer at them. But at the end of the day, I remember you going to 7-Eleven, and like almost all the store was chained off. You couldn't buy, you could buy pampers and bread, but you couldn't buy much of anything else, maybe medicine. Only real essentials. And little by little, it was beginning to erode, but almost everything was closed. And, you know, you kind of almost had to stay home. <laughs> you know, there just wasn't much to do. But, but at the end of the day, there, there was, it was a very different day. And for all sorts of reasons that I can't detail with you here, but our culture, of course, has set that day aside. And now, sadly, not only is it a day where people just shop and do whatever they please, but also, sadly, because of that, because we so worship convenience, it now becomes a day where a lot of people, quote, have to work, have to work. And, and not in essential things like ambulances and hospitals, which has always been true, but things like commercial retail and uh, shopping centers and so on, which are not essential, you see. And again, the, the libertarian in me might say, well, the people should be free to do as they please in our country, but at the end of the day, we've lost something. We just have. 
And part of the social teaching of the church, the social doctrine of the church, does indicate that there is a matter of justice in the question of a day of rest. And that every human person who works is entitled to at least that day of rest. Ideally, the day where they also worship God. And so obviously, for most Christians, that's always going to be Sunday. But for our Jewish brethren, out of justice, we should insist they should be entitled to have that Saturday. And um, so it is part of the just. And by the way, the Holy Father develops that in the question Dies Hominis, in that section of the of the document, where he ties this observation of the Sabbath into the social teaching of the church. It's part of our teaching that otherwise, you know, labor and rest can become relentless. We become almost like slaves to our workplace. And even if you're not working down in a coal mine, you might have to be at the office all kinds of times. The, the boss demands all kinds of deadlines and so on. And finally, someone just needs to throw the penalty flag on the say, sorry, not on Sunday. But that's gone away now. And because of that, there's a lot of injustice where many people, especially the poor, are required to work very painful, difficult, long, arduous hours where they can't even find a time where everyone else is off to be with them. If they do have any time off at all, it's often when their families aren't off and their children aren't away and so on. So there isn't that family day any longer. And that's, that is a matter of justice. And the Pope develops that. Now, let's talk a little bit, though, just as a preamble, going back to the Old Testament concepts of this day of the Lord, which they called the Sabbath. Seventh day, Shabbat, the seventh day, and it was the day when, quote, God rested. All right. Now you see that it is it, explained there um, that uh, for seven, for six days, the Lord, you know, did all these things. But on the seventh day, he rested. Now, let's talk for a moment here um, about. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll read. It didn't mean God took a nap. And the Pope is very clear. In fact, let me read you that little section right now from Dies Domini. Um, my copy's oh, here. It is under here. Um, because, again, be careful. This is not what we mean by... It's nice to take a nap, by the way. It's a, I, I'm a big believer in them. But that's not what it means of God. <clears throat> the, the Pope here writes, and this is number 11 of Dies Domini. Jesus says, My father is working still, and so am I. The divine rest on the seventh day does not allude to an inactive God but emphasizes the fullness of what has been accomplished. It speaks, as it were, of God's lingering before the very good work which his hand had wrought in order to cast upon it a gaze full of joyous delight. In other words, God is enjoying the fruit of his work. And that at the heart of your Sunday rest should really be what you're able to do. You should really have a day, ideally for all of us on Sunday, where you just sit back and savor the fruit of your work and of God's graces to you. God's been good to you, and you need to take time and say, thank you, I'm enjoying this immensely. I love my family, even though they drive me crazy. That deserves an amen. Um, um, I love my family. You've given me a beautiful home, a country to live in, uh, where whatever troubles we're having, we're still, we still have a stable government. We're still driving on paved roads. I thank you for the blessings of this land. I thank you for the blessings you've given me. Thank you, Lord. You've been so good to me. And, you, and, and, and you've given me a work to do. And now I have a few minutes to just savor maybe a meal with my family, with my friends, and enjoy some of the fruits of my labor. St. Ambrose, and the Pope quotes this uh, in, in the document as well, says that it's interesting that it says God rested after he made man. 
It doesn't say that he rested after he made the stars and the, and the planets. It doesn't say, he says he rested after he made man. As if to say, it takes the highest work for God to say, now I can really enjoy. You can't have a relationship with animals or stars or planets or galaxies. But with the human person, God can relate. God can savor. God can enjoy the fruits of his work. And so God, it's not just that you're supposed to rejoice in God, but God wants to take a minute and rejoice in you. And so he rests, but not to go to sleep and say, oh, I'm exhausted, but rather to savor the fruits of his work. Likewise, in the Old Testament, there was a very strong theme of how the Lord um, would had um, how the Lord had uh, delivered the people from from uh, from exile, uh, from from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea, and so it says in in, in Exodus, "You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you thence with a mighty hand and outstretched arm before the Lord your God, and He commanded you to keep the Sabbath day." So part of the Sabbath is to take time and remember the mighty deeds that the Lord had done in the Exodus and has done. How many Exoduses has He ever parted the Red Sea for you? He has for me. Come on, church. You know, he's, he's done wonderful things in your life. He's drawn you clear. He's led you to a place. You say, but wait a minute, I've had sufferings too. I know that, and so does he. But I tell you, look at you, you're still alive. It hasn't killed you. He's continuing to deliver you, and one day he's going to part the veil and lead you to the glory of heaven if you're faithful to him. Oh, you've got to take time and just savor the victories, the good things that the Lord has done for you. To say, thank you, Lord, thank you for all that you've done for me. And so they were commanded to remember. We're going to look at this word remember also a little bit later in the notes. A very powerful word, anamnesis, okay? So we have here, God rested. That's why, and as he rests, so do we rest. But remember, rest doesn't mean go to sleep, although that's nice. Take a good nap on Sunday, enjoy it. But remember, you're meant to savor the fruits of your work as God did. Likewise, to recall the liberation that God has accomplished for us. And then fulfillment. Uh, now, this, this then leads us then to, I, I want to say, every now and again we get into these debates. Um, are we keeping the commandment um, to keep holding the Sabbath uh, or not? And yes, we are. Of course we are. Uh, but we're not just keeping it. We're fulfilling it. See, we're fulfilling it. See, the Sabbath rest pointed to something. It pointed to God's creation and to the savoring of his work. Likewise, it pointed to the liberation that Israel had, had accomplished for them in, in the great Exodus event. And likewise, though, Christ has done all of that, but he transposed it. See, we, we were expecting water, and he gave us wine. That is to say, he didn't just put us back into some earthly paradise. He's opened up the heavens. He didn't just uh, deliver us from some worldly power. He's delivered us from Satan's grasp. You, have, you stand a chance now to be free of Satan because of what Jesus Christ has done. And the only enemy you need to fear isn't even Satan. It's just your own crazy flesh. Your, your biggest enemy isn't the devil. It's you. And if you will just lay, lay hold of this victory. So the Lord has taken these, these victories of, of the old covenant and he's transposed them. And he's in a way fulfilled them. They pointed somewhere and they pointed to Jesus who led us in, in, in another greater exodus through the waters of baptism. And now we come out not just slaves to becoming free, but we come uh, to some Pharaoh 
but rather, where's Pharaoh now? You see, but we who were slaves to the devil have now been set free to be given the glorious freedom of the children of God. And so there's a great fulfillment that comes in the Christ event. And so we're not discarding the Sabbath, but rather we're fulfilling it by celebrating it on Sunday, saying that the Lord is not locked into the old covenant, but rather now in the new covenant, our day, which we are to keep holy, is indeed uh, not technically the Sabbath, which means the seventh day, but rather, uh, depending on how you want to call it, the first day of the week, or we prefer to call it the eighth day, when the Lord took all the creation and gloriously recreated it, but more gloriously than it had ever been before. You see the vision. So all of these are ways of saying this is why we would, we would call it the Lord's Day, not so much the Sabbath. Although we are fulfilling the commandment and obeying it, we are doing it in a fulfilled sense. Now, with that in mind, we have some of that preamble. But now let's look at some of these prescripts. And this is really at the heart of my talk tonight, where I want to spend... Prescript just means, what are some aspects? You know, why has God given us this commandment? And um, why has he done this, you see? Why has he done this? And, <clears throat> again, we... Um, I have a number of things. I love alliterations. You can see they all start with the letter R. <laughs> the, com the commandments of God are not against you. They're for you. The commandments of God are not just a bunch of rules to keep. They are, if you will, a recipe for transformation. In fact, all of the commandments are the description of a transformed human person. And one aspect of the transformed human person is that they are deeply grateful to God, aware of God's power in their life, grateful, remembering of what God has done, and they want to praise Him, they want to love Him, they're happy to take a day and just celebrate with God and enjoy the glory of what God is doing in their life. So the day of keep holy the Sabbath... Or else, don't see it that way, but see it as a great invitation to enter into the dignity of what it means to be a transformed human person who has been given the grace to worship God, not just in an inferior human sense, but united with Christ, you now give perfect praise to the Father. Because every Mass you go to, Jesus is the High Priest. And you can't praise the Father like He ought to be praised, but Jesus can and when you unite your, your praise and, your, and, and your, your body to his body, the, in Christ the great high priest, perfect praise is given to the Father. How can you ever really thank God for what he's done for you? How can you do it? How can you really do it? And the answer is only with Jesus. Only with Jesus. So, a couple of uh, thoughts. We've already talked a little bit about this un understanding of the word remember. That is to say, there are events that we remember. We remember how the Lord has been good to us. How he saved us and set us free in the past. But likewise, likewise, we have here this, um, if you will, the word remember. Let's talk about it for a minute. What does it mean to remember? Anamnesis. What does that mean? It's more than just, you know, oh yeah, I'll have a fact up on my brain somewhere. Here's what it means to remember. I'm going to say it twice because... You ought, to rem you ought to memorize it. <laughs> to remember means to have so present in my mind and my heart what God has done for me so that I'm grateful 
and different. To remember means to have so present to my mind and my heart what God has done for me that I'm grateful and different. Now, every Sunday at Mass, the Lord tells you, remember. Is that right after the consecration of the chalice? I think our current translation says, do this in memory of me. Some other scriptural translations, do this in remembrance of me. The Lord, what is the Lord saying to you in that moment? He's saying, don't just kneel there looking around, but have it, pay attention. Pay attention to what I've done for you. Remember what I've done for you. Let it be present in your mind and your heart, what I have done for you, so that you're grateful and you're different. Now you see, brethren, it's finally going to dawn on us one day that the Lord Jesus Christ died for us, died for me. And when that dawns on us, we start to weep for our sins and we weep for joy. Our heart breaks open and light floods in and we become so grateful, so profoundly grateful so that we're different. You know, when you're really great, gratitude is a form of joy, isn't it? And when you're really joyful, it's hard to really despise your neighbor. Someone cuts you off in traffic, you say, that's okay, you know, go ahead. You must... <laughs> Somebody asks you for 10 bucks, you give them 20, you know? I mean, when you're grateful and you're, you're joyful, it's, oh, so much poison just goes out of you in a minute, doesn't it? Brethren, go, go to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, anoint me. Anoint my mind and my heart so it finally begins to dawn on me that you died for me. And you have given me every grace, every beat of my heart, every cell of my body, every part of every cell of my body. You're keeping and you're running and you're, you're taking such good care of me. And I grumble and complain about the least little thing. But Lord, touch my mind, anoint my heart. Let it dawn on me that you died for me, that you love me, that you're saving me and setting me free and giving me every grace. And brethren, when I say it, let it dawn on you, most of us think in English, dawn means like pop, it's something that pops into your mind. But you know, that's not how dawn works, is it? There's a little sliver of light, and it gets a little brighter and brighter, and suddenly, full moon, right? Not suddenly, but in degrees. And that's what I mean, but you've got to begin to let the Lord go to work in you, because one of the key elements then of coming together on Sunday is to remember. To let it be present to your mind and your heart what the Lord has done for you, so that you are grateful and you're different. I promise you, if you will become grateful, you will be different. You will not. So much poison just goes away. You're more forgiving, you're more merciful, you're more kind, you're more serene, and you do speak the truth. But you speak it not to win an argument or to overpower, but you speak it because you love. And so you see the vision? Remembrance. When we come together on the Lord's Day, we're called to remember, to remember. Now, um, I'm going to take some of these out of order, so tell me if I miss one when I don't get them in order, you know. But, for example, go down with me for a moment there. Another aspect of our Sunday is what we might call review or recollection, Number letter E there. In other words, instruction in God's Word. What, what are we basically doing every Sunday in the liturgy? We're reminding, we're being reminded of our story. 
And what's our story? That we've been through some bad straits, but the Lord has a way of making a way out of no way. (laughs) He's a way maker. The Lord can write straight with crooked lines. He can hit a home run with every curveball we pitch him, and he can make a way out of no way. And over and over again when we read our scriptures, what are we reading? We're reading stories about how we messed up, we were confused, we sinned, but God didn't give up. He kept working with us. He had to sometimes punish us. He sent us prophets. He instructed us. He reminded us. But at the end of the day, He sent His Son to die for us, and He loves us, and He's calling us now. And He's never forgotten you. And He's still calling. And He will rescue you from every trial that you're in now. And so again, there is this, if you will, remembrance of our story. That yes, our ancestors went through painful, difficult moments, but God delivered them. And for those who were faithful, they're in heaven with Him now. God can deliver and is a way maker and He will deliver you. And we need to be reminded of that because we give way to discouragement. You know, it's kind of getting dark out there, literally now, but I mean, culturally too. And we're we're a little anxious, we're a little concerned. But brethren, you know, a little history will help you here. The church has been through some real thick and difficult times. A lot of ups and downs, you know. And through it all, the Lord has kept His church preaching the gospel in season and out of season. Even when there was terrible sin inside the church, He still kept the church preaching. He raised up reformers. He's got a way of just reforming the church just when we need it. Look around this room right now. You know, they say only 25% of Catholics are going to Mass. All right, that's true, and that's a sad thing. We've got to work on it. But I'm going to tell you right now, look around, though. The 25% who are still here, there's a lot more intensity. A lot of folks are really passionate today. The Lord is up to something good. Remember that. The Lord has a way of delivering us. Now go with me to Good Friday for a minute. The church got very small for a minute. You got Jesus up there, the head of the body. You got Mary Magdalene. All of the bishops but one is gone. John is there. You got Mary's mother. You got a couple of other Marys and another Mary. (laughs) And a Salome. We had to have a Salome in there. Yeah. Four or five members and Christ the head. That's a pretty small church. Are you praying with me? And they got two converts that day. The centurion and the good thief, right? Not bad when you're down to four or five members. You know, an increase in 20%. But what was happening at that moment? Total loss according to the world, right? But the greatest victory that has ever been won was being accomplished in that low moment. Oh, God's a way maker. Don't you doubt it. Now, I'm just giving you the Paschal event. But I tell you story after story about Moses, about Abraham, about Judith, about, about, uh, about David, uh, uh, about Peter, about Magdalene, about all, all these stories that we read over and over. But brethren, that's not just stories about people 2,000 years ago. That's your story. That's your story. You're Peter. You're Magdalene. You're Pontius Pilate. Yeah. And if you're prepared to accept it, you're Jesus. It's your story. You see. So we're told these stories so that we're instructed in the Word of God and we don't give way to despair. And we remember that God's a way maker. And likewise, I'm going to just tell you right now, you've got to read God's Word every day. You've got to study the teachings of the church. You know, I'm just going to tell you right now, if you're not reading Scripture, you're not going to make it. You've just got to get with God's Word. There's just too much stinking thinking out there for you to think your mind is going to be anything but polluted and your whole mind filled with confused priorities if you are not cleansing it with the Word of God every day. 
the teachings of the catechism, the word of God. You've got to cleanse your mind. I'm telling you right now, you, our minds are like a sponge, and you put a, mu- a sponge in muddy water, and it's very muddy out there today. You put a sponge in muddy water, don't kid yourself, it's coming out muddy. Now, the only way you can clean the sponge like that is to plunge it in clean water and wring it out and plunge it back into the clean water and wring it out. And what's the, what's the clean water? It's the Word of God. It's the teachings of the church. It's the scriptures. It is our great tradition. It is the Word of God. You've got to have it. And that's why on Sunday we are instructed in God's Word. It's read to us and pray for good preaching. I know. You say, impossible. It'll never happen in the Catholic Church. Okay. Little by little. Poco a poco, right? Okay. So, but keep praying. Keep working, see? And remember, you see, you're being instructed so you can turn as parents and grandparents, as aunts and uncles and so on, and teach others. Are you praying with me? Somebody say amen. Amen. So we come to remember. And we, we, if you will, um, we, uh, we review. We, we, we consider what God has done for us in the past and we let him teach us, you see, and remind us that the victory is already ours in Christ Jesus. You say, oh, no, no, the whole world's gone crazy, Father. The whole thing is all lost. Listen, where's Caesar now? Where's Napoleon? Where's the Soviet Socialist Republic? Well, you say, oh, they're, they're getting, they're picking things. <laughs> Where are all these people who are going to bury the church? Listen, we have buried every one of our undertakers. Don't kid yourself now. They think, they want you to think, and the devil wants you to think it's all over. It's not all over. Now, we have a fight. Be sober. It's a fight. Guess what? We got Jesus. Yeah, I, I read the. I, I don't have my Bible handy right now, but I looked at the last page. <laughs> it says Jesus wins. We've already won. So fight, but fight with confidence. One of the reasons they're so angry with us is they know deep down inside we're right. Of course they know we're right. Anybody? Yeah, look, come on. An eighth grade biology student knows there's something wrong with homosexual activity and homosexual marriage. Likewise, fornication, all this stuff. We got deep down. They know. They know that we're right. That's why they're so mad. So just keep preaching. Keep teaching. The truth will out. Nations have come and gone. Empires have risen and fallen. Philosophies have all come and gone. All in the age of the church. Every 500 years is a terrible conflagration. We're in, we're in one of those periods now. Stay. Fight the good fight. The victory is already ours. But that's what we learn when we come to God's church and we listen. Don't just, you know, I mean, really listen to the word of God. All right. Now, let's go through. Another aspect of coming to Mass on Sunday is to rejoice. Now, listen. Some people say, well, it says I've got to keep holding to the Sabbath. It means I should rest. It doesn't say I have to go to church. <laughs> Well, first of all, let's just read here. This is from Leviticus, just so we know. The old covenant was clear on this. Six days you may work, but the seventh day is a day of rest. See, I said, that's all i got to do is rest. No, it goes on to say, it is a day of sacred assembly. What does that mean? That, that's just the word for church. Assembly is just another word for church. It means you come together with God's people. And you give God the glory. You give God the praise. You come together, you support each other, and you give God the glory. All right? So, again, Leviticus. Now, also, uh, Hebrews 10, verse 25. I'll just say from memory. You are not to neglect to meet together regularly, as is the habit of some. And all the more you'd better meet together regularly as the day is drawing near. You've got to be ready. 
And I'm going to just tell you right now, if you're not walking in holy fellowship with the church, you're probably not going to be ready. Your mind's going to be God knows where. Your opinions, your values, you're going to be confused, you're going to be lost. And so, so that the light of God's kingdom will seem like a harsh light and you'll say, turn that light off. You've got to become accustomed to the light by walking in the light, by walking with the church as the light is announced and proclaimed. You've got to get used to the light or the light will seem harsh. The light is not harsh, but the light will seem harsh. So again, we've got to, we've got to come together and rejoice in God and be used to the light. Now, another reason of going to church is simply, look, God is worthy. Do not come before the Lord empty-handed, says Scripture. It just, doesn't just mean come with your tithe. You ought to do that, by the way. <laughs> but but it, it, it means come with your praise. Come, come with your love. Come with your heart. But come and give God the glory, because I'm just going to tell you God is worthy of all our praise. Somebody said, I heard an amen. That deserved more of an amen. God is <laughs> worthy of our praise. He's been too good for us to be so rude as not to say, thank you, Father. You've been good to me. And even when you weren't being good to me, you were still being good to me. Because your word says that all things work together for good for those who love and trust God and are the call according to his purpose. Romans 8, look it up. It's still there. So that even the difficult and the painful things, if you're faithful, are working for your good. God, permits, God only permits suffering for some greater good. God is up to something good in your life. You ought to tell him, thank you. Thank you. But you say, well, how can I, how can I tell him thank you? Well, I, he told you how to say, say thanks. You know. He said, well, how can I ever give thanks to God? I mean, he's been so good to me. Here's how. It's right in Psalm 116, right? How can I ever render thanks to God for all the good that he's done for me? <laughs> the cup of salvation I will take up and I will call on the name of the Lord. The Holy Mass is the greatest act of thanksgiving and the most fitting and the most perfect act of thanksgiving that you can render to God. Nothing else comes even close. Well, that's not much for that. Is that all I need to do? Come. But you see the vision here. How shall I ever give thanks to the Lord for all the good He's done for me? God gives the answer right there. Take up the cup of salvation. You know when that chalice is held up? It's your way of saying, Thank you, Father. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you. That is the fitting praise that God wants. You see, you alone can't give fitting thanks to God, neither can I. But together, and even together, just as human beings, we can't give God fitting praise. But when Christ, our high priest, holds up the chalice of his blood and gives thanks to his Father, it says he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. He gave thanks, and he gave it to them. See, he took the chalice. Again, he gave God thanks. Eucharist, right? The word, the Greek word for thanksgiving. Jesus thanks his Father and gives him proper praise. You better get with Jesus if you want to give God, God the Father proper praise, all right? Just a thought on this, too. You know, sometimes people say, how can I get my son, daughter, and nephew to come back to church? I say, well, let me ask you to try this. Now, I'm not saying it works 100%. I'm just going to say it's had some impact. Let's say that you're walking with... Well, so what if I were to tell you that this is the final wish of a dying friend? Now, let's just say you're walking across the street with a very good friend of yours, and then suddenly a truck comes barreling down, and your friend pushes you out of the way, and wham! They get hit by the truck, and they're lying there dying in, on the pavement. You run up to them. You're horrified. They've been so hurt. They pushed you out of the way. They saved your life, and they took the hit. 
All right, you got that? And they're lying there dying. What can I ever do to thank you for what you've done for me? I so awful what's happened. I hope you don't die. But what can I ever do? I said, just remember me every Sunday at church. Would you do it? Well, isn't that exactly what Jesus asked at the Last Supper? The last and final wish of a dying friend. He said to them, do this in remembrance of me. Come on, church. It's not that hard. You might think, well, doesn't he want me to go to a mountaintop and slay animals by the thousands or something? No. Come. Gather with me faithfully on Sunday. And let's, pra- let's praise my Father together. Oh, that's more precious to me than any other thing. Any other thing you could ever do. The final wish of a dying friend. Try it. You never know. Sometimes people just, they don't get it. It's sort of up in the cloud. Go to Mass. But what if his final wish before he went out to the cross to die for you was, do this in remembrance of me? Okay. By the way, I, I do a blog. It's, there's a little thing down. You can just type in final wish of a dying friend. You'll find an article. Yeah, I, I, I put it in writing. I did every, I've done everything in writing. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we also then want to... Um, Understand. Let's now talk about what we might call repast. Now, again, just because I like my letter R's, but look, it's, I'm talking about Holy Communion. Brethren, I'm just going to give you, this is another key quote. You've got to just memorize it. Just memorize it. John 6, verse 53. Unless. That's a, that's a strong, before I go any further, that's a pretty strong word, isn't it? It's kind of a dichotomy word, isn't it? You know, it's this or it's nothing. Unless. You eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. No life. You've got to eat. The Lord wants to feed you. He wants to bring you to heaven. But you've got to eat. You've got to have food for the journey. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now, I say this at every funeral. I I warn, because I I figured at funerals, 80% of the people that come to my funerals don't go to church. But that's a conservative estimate. Sometimes it's higher. I, I, well, I got them. I give them to come to Jesus talk. I do. I warn them. I tell them nobody loves you more than Jesus Christ, and yet nobody warns you about judgment and hell more than Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life in you. Now, you've got to get right with God. You've got to repent of your sins, and you've got to get to God's house on Sunday. And don't give me the stuff about watching it on TV, which you probably don't do anyway. But you can't get Holy Communion on TV. You've got to begin to walk with God, with His church. You've got to have Holy Communion. If you want to argue, don't argue with me. Argue with Jesus. He said it. I didn't. That's a quick synopsis. of. Again, you can look it up on the Internet, my funeral homily. Okay, It's all written out. But I'll just say, you've got to get... Don't make light of this. You know, Some of your children... And grandchildren are starving spiritually, and they're probably going to go to hell if they don't get back to God's sacraments. And you've got to be urgent about it. Look, I, I tell you, anyone who's a parent had a child who stopped eating, they would move heaven and earth to find out what was wrong and get that kid back to eating. But then they're not going to church for years. Oh, well, you know, that's just how they are. What? Jesus says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you've got no life in you. Now, he uses the whole, if you look at all of John chapter 6, what he's saying is, you, he says, you remember the manna in the wilderness? Of course, most of us remember the manna, but let's just review. They were in the desert. They'd come through. They'd been baptized, and if you will, and they came out slaves, and they were free, but they're in the desert. There's no food. And they say, uh-oh, 
And God says, tell them tomorrow morning to go, and I will show them the food that will sustain them on their journey. And they, they found this dough-like substance. You can knead it like dough and bake it like bread. It, it, the word manna doesn't mean bread. It means you got to scratch your head when you say it. Manu. I mean, what is this? <laughs> but So we used to say that when we'd go to the college uh, kitchen, you know. <laughs> it's a mystery meat. But anyway, we would... But, he said, and they had, to, they had to knead that dough and bake it. If they hadn't eaten that bread, they would have died. They would have never made it to the promised land. That manna sustained them. And Jesus says in John 6, as it was for them, as your fathers who had manna in the wilderness, so now I am the living bread for you that's come down from heaven for you to eat and not die so you can make it to the promised land of heaven. And if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, I solemnly assure you, you will, you will have no life in you. You will not make it. So we speak. We speak of this Eucharist as viaticum, food for the journey, right? This food for the Lord who's with us on our way, and he feeds us in the desert of this life. So we have to eat. We have to, have to, have to eat. So please be urgent about that. Now, someone might say, well, 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 well are you saying that all the Protestants everyone are going, to, are going to go to heaven? I'm not here to tell you any of that. I'm just going to say that we're bound by the sacraments. Now, God isn't. Maybe he has other ways, but he hasn't told us that. He just said, you get, you get to my altar every Sunday and you eat this flesh and drink this blood. You've got no life in you. If you want to make any arguments, talk to him. He said it. I didn't. Okay. Likewise, on the, on the Sabbath day, this is more than just Mass now. I want to do a couple of other things more quickly and then try to wrap it up because my signs are being held up in the back. And some of you who do know me know that I'm a motor mouth and I could go on and on. But look, um, reflecting, reflecting, listen. Where are you going with your life? What's your life amounting to? What are your decisions adding up to? You know, we could go for weeks without ever thinking about that. We could go for years the unreflective life is not worth living. And so part of the Sabbath rest is to take some time and reflect and say, who am I? Who's the man God made me to be? Where am I in my relationship with God? Where am I in my relationship with my wife and children, with my parish? Where am I in relationship with important people in my life? What are my decisions adding up to? Am I moving towards the kingdom or away from it? Where am I on this journey? Take time to reflect. Too many people just mad dash. And you say, why are you doing all this? Um, money? Uh, okay, and then what? Well, then I can get things. Uh-huh, okay, and then what? Um, then I guess I'll be happy? How's that working for you? Uh, and then what? Um, and then you die! You see, you, it, but people aren't doing that kind of work. They're not thinking like that, see? And too many people, even those of us in this room, we're so busy rushing here and there. We don't even know why we're rushing here and there anymore. We're just doing it because we do it, because we're told to do it, because somebody told us to do it. Why? Did God tell you to do it? Do you ever take time and just say, what am I doing with my life? Where am I going? What's it adding up to? Okay. <clears throat> so part of that dies domini is the dies hominis. It's that day for us to step back and say, who am I? Who's my family? Where are we going? Is my a career eclipsing, eclipsing my vocation? Or is my vocation really in authority? And so on. Those are critical questions that too many people don't ask. And Sabbath is a time to do that. Uh, here's another one. Rehearsal. Rehearsal. 
Uh, I don't know if you know this, but Mass is the dress rehearsal for heaven. If you uh, read uh, the descriptions of heaven, what does, it, what does it sound like? It's a Catholic Mass! Oh, no. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, really? <laughs> now you know why some people don't want to go to heaven. <laughs> but look, there's candles, incense, priest in long white robes. There's hymns being sung. There's a book. Being, and there's the meaning being given to the book. The Lamb who reveals the meaning of the book. Uh, there's the Lamb on the altar, etc. You've read Scott Hahn's book. You're all well read. But it's, it's, it's right there in Revelation. My church, if you ever come to see it, is laid out of that perfect vision of Revelation 4 and 5. The whole church is laid out along the, the vision of that, you see. You can look it up on the Internet on my blog. Okay. But, um, but again, part of this is it's the dress rehearsal for heaven. It's getting used to what heaven is about, which is a glorious thanksgiving and singing of praise and experiencing fellowship with the Lamb and with each other and being before our God and just rejoicing and saying thank you and just being with God forever. You know, it is so sad if you ask even, you ask people, what do you think heaven is like? And they start to tell you, well, it's like mansions, roads with gold, paving, I'll be with my family, harps, wing, you know. I keep waiting. Will they mention it? Will they mention it? God. They don't mention God. They, did you hear me? I'm talking about church-going people now. They don't mention God. We have very egocentric notions of happiness, of faith, of heaven. The glory of heaven is to be with God forever. To look on His glorious face and say, oh, and just be just one look. That's all it took. <laughs> yeah. Brethren, we do not know what we shall be like, but we, we, we know this, that we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. Just one look. All my hopes, all my desires. My heart is spoken within me. Seek always the face of the Lord. You know? Oh, no, I just want a big house. Okay. So you see, be careful. You see, we've got, to, we've got to be trained for what heaven really is, you know. Some people say, well, uh, you, you know, some people say, well, God doesn't force people to go to heaven if they don't want to. And then the objection is, well, everybody wants to go to heaven. It's the heaven that they make up. It's a designer heaven. But it's not necessarily the real heaven. Brethren, the real heaven has a lot of things related to it that people don't want a thing to do with in this world. Heaven is about justice. Heaven is about love of my enemy. Heaven is about love of the poor. Heaven is about chastity. Heaven is about forgiveness. These are the values of the kingdom of God. And some of those things on that list, I told you, a lot of folks don't want to have a thing to do with. Forgive my enemy. I want to kill him. I mean, come on. I've watched too many adventure movies. Here's what you do with your enemy. You kill him. Burning city in the background. Roll credits. <laughs> chastity. Please. Please. Get out of my bedroom. Okay, fine. I've never been in your bedroom. But you can have all the bedroom you want in another place other than heaven. But you see, the point is that chastity and there is purity and so on. These are the things that... And if you don't want it, you don't have to have it. But you see, part of coming to Mass is being trained up in the great dress rehearsal. So we hear about things like purity, love of enemies, forgiveness, praise of God. 
God being at the center, we're instructed in God's words and what God values and God's vision for us, you see? And we come to behold our God, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, all right. Well, um, I'm running out of time, but I want to try to quickly look at these last two, the precepts, and, and ask you to be prophets. Now, look, just simply this. I've already kind of led up to this, but look, look. Um, how are we, when I say precepts, what I mean here is that, first of all, I want you to go to Mass because, first of all, it's a commandment. And God doesn't command except that he means it for our good. God doesn't just make you jump through hoops. I hope, I hope in this group tonight you're clear on that, okay? But nevertheless, Jesus sometimes appeals to servile fear. He just said, if you don't do it, you're going to hell. Depart from me, you evildoers, into the fire, prepare for the devil and his legions. So, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh no, we should never use fear-based arguments today. <laughs> well, Jesus did all the time. He did all the time. Now, I don't mean that's the highest argument. I hope that most of us come to a point in our life where it's not, that we're not keeping the commandments just because we're afraid of being punished, but because we actually love God and we're kind of on board with what sin does and how awful it is, and we just don't want to hurt God or hurt other people. We love God. And, but, but, you know, most of us sometimes need appeals to lower things to begin with. And, you know, how little kids are, you know, you've got to sort of swat their behind a little sometimes and, you know, threaten them a little. Um, that's just part of it. That's kind of how we are. So the first thing that I just want to say to you, it is a mortal sin to miss Mass on Sunday. Now, I hope you can see why, based on what we said, right? First of all, God is worthy. It's a, just plain rude to not give thanks Secondly, we absolutely need to eat. We just absolutely need to eat or we're going to die spiritually. We've got to have Holy Communion. And third, of course, it's in the commandments. Now, again, this is a quote from the Catechism. Not some old trans catechism. This is the current catechism, 2181. Not the mean old church talking. The faithful are obliged to participate in the Eucharist on days of obligation unless excused for a serious reason. For example, illness or the care of an infant or dispensed by their own pastor. Now, those who deliberately fail in this obligation commit a grave sin. Now, look, tell that. I mean, I, I, I never, I was probably the last of the generation to ever hear that missing mass was a mortal sin. Too many people have never, ever heard that from their pulpit. But listen, we complain a lot about pulpits, and you should. I, look, we're, not, we're not great. But look, this is not the only pulpit that, well, this is, not, you know, the one in the church. You've got a pulpit. It's your dining room table. The pulpits in churches aren't the only pulpits that have been silent. If you're waiting for everything to come from the pulpit over in a church, you, we've only got you for an hour. You, you've got your kids all week long. When did they hear from your pulpit? See, so again, just be clear on this. You know, you don't have to you know hammer away at it. But you know, I always have a little shorthand. I say, go to church, go to hell. <laughs> And, you know, I mean, people know me and they know, they, they, oh, that's it. but they also know I'm being serious. You know, you use humor, but you're also being serious. Okay. So, um, and now, but listen, listen. Um, follow, though, the Sabbath and, and try to find some rest on Sunday as well, because it's good for you. God, God wants this for you. He wants you to enjoy some time with your family. Part of your glory, you were made to glorify God. Part of your glory is to give praise to God. But the book of Ephesians says we were made for the praise of His glory. I don't know about you, but when I'm praising God, we've got some lively worship in my church. I, I'm in the groove. Because that's what I was made for. I'm made to praise God. 
And when I'm doing what I'm made for, I feel alive, I feel joyful, I feel happy. And so will you. So do you. You see? It is sad how many people go to church like getting a flu shot. <sighs> Let's get this thing over as quickly and painlessly as possible. You know, I don't have time to develop that all, but you know, some people put more faith in Tylenol than they do Holy Communion. Because when they take Tylenol, they expect something to happen. But when they take the Eucharist, what do they expect? Nothing. They take the Tylenol, they expect the pain to go away, the swelling to go down, they expect healing. Why do we expect things like that of Tylenol and we go up to the Eucharist? Body cry, I'm in. Come on. Is that the best that the death of the Son of God can do? Go with great expectations. You see, the Lord wants to heal you with His Word. He wants to give you a Word that will change your life forever. He wants to feed you with His body and blood so that you become the one you receive. And He wants to heal you and bring you strength. And He wants to bring you alive with praise. Okay? And then again, just simply, this other thing, just simply, the Lord says, please make time. Make time. You know, we find time for everything else. You're not going to miss your favorite show. You find time to eat. You, know, you find time for golf. I don't mean, you know, all of this. You know, you get the point. You know, and the Lord says, just take some time and carve it out. Spend Sundays with your family if you can. And certainly get to church. But make the time. Finally, I want to end on this idea. You know, I did say to you that, look, one thing we've got to say to people is, look, it's just it's a mortal sin to miss Mass. Now, cut it out and get to Mass. But we've also, brethren, you know, the argument from authority maybe may have worked when some of us were younger. You know, but our, our whole culture went through a revolution in the late 60s. Arguments from authority, not only do they not work, they usually backfire. If there is a rule, all the more reason not to do it. I ain't going to listen to the man. You know, that's the attitude today, right? But listen... It's, it, I do think it's important, though. People should know this is a rule. But beyond that, why do you go to church? See, you've got to say that to your children and grandchildren. Don't just say, we're going to church because it's a rule. Now, that may have worked in the 1950s. But it just doesn't work today. You've got to say more than that. You can't just say, we're going to church because it's a rule. Well, you're not going to win any hearts that way. So, you've got to say, listen, parents... Why do you go to church? What do you get out of it? Grandparents, elders, catechists, priests. I'll tell you why I go to church. Well, I go to church because I'm a priest and I have to. <laughs> Listen, I'm, I'll tell you why I go to church. I go to church because the Lord Jesus Christ is changing my life. You know, I've been going to Mass every day of my life for the last 30 years. Since I went to the seminary, I went in 30-some years ago this very time, and I'm going to tell you, my life has been changed. I pray every day. I go to confession once a week. I, I get to Mass every day, I'm, 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 and I want you to know something. I, I read the breviary every day. I read Scripture every day. I tell you, I'm becoming so alive. I'm more confident. I'm more serene. Uh, I, so many anxieties have been put to death. I've seen sins put to death. I've seen graces come alive. I'm more serene. I'm more confident. I'm more joyful. I'm trying to be more compassionate. Oh, such incredible wisdom has been shown to me. And you know, when I gather with God's people, the gifts they've given me. You know, there was a time in my life in my mid-30s when I was in trouble and my congregation was there for me. They prayed with me and they witnessed to me and they testified. And I just don't know where I'd be without God's people. 
showing me their faith. I look at you tonight, I see your faith, I'm so encouraged. I tell you, I don't know where I'd be without the sacraments. I don't know where I'd be without confession and communion especially. But I also don't know where I'd be without God's people. Without folks like you to encourage me and say, boy, go get them, Father. You know, it'll be all right, Father. Whatever's going on in your life, you see. People who gather with me and praise with me and, and listen to me, and they've also taught me more than I ever taught them. I just, I tell you, that's why I go to church. Now, that's my witness, but what's yours? You've got to leave here today as prophets. I've gone over my time, so I'm going to wrap it up now. But just say, look, you've got to leave tonight as prophets. You can't just say, well, we heard a bunch of rules and heard some interesting insights and we got a quick outline of the letter and that was all very nice and I'm informed. <clears throat> I don't want you to be informed. I want you to be transformed. <laughs> See, now again, information is very nice. But, you know, as, as Pope Benedict said, you know, the Word of God does not just inform, it transforms and it performs. And I'm hoping tonight that to have maybe given you some thoughts about the magnificence of Holy Mass, of the Day of the Lord. Of, I, I didn't spend as much time as I wanted to on the idea of finding rest and recollection with your family, but you fill that in. That's important work. You know, spend that time. You know, we don't sit down to meals anymore. That's disgraceful. You know, make the time. Sunday's a great day if you can possibly do it. But do it. But you see, leave here today as witnesses, as prophets, testifying. But spend a little time and go to the foot of the cross and remember. Let it become present to your heart and your mind what the Lord has done for you so that you are grateful and you are different. And then run out and tell somebody. Jesus has been good to me. Now come and go with me to my Father's house where there's joy, joy, joy. Come and go with me to my Father's house. I'm singing a song. But, okay, praise the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Monsignor. Thank you. In view of your comment about people forced to work on Sundays, how do you feel about um, like going out to eat at restaurants or other kinds of entertainment venues that people go yeah. to on Sundays? Well, I think the, the church's general counsel, and you'll find some of this in the catechism, is to try to counsel or to avoid overly legalistic things. So we're not going to single-handedly change our culture. I generally try not to go out a lot to restaurants on Sunday. That's my choice. Um, but I don't think we should set any absolute rules because the church doesn't. Uh, the catechism is a little bit, um, uh, I wouldn't say the word permissive comes to mind, but you know what I mean, in the sense of it, 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 it allows some latitude. Mainly going back to Jesus' own concern that we not use the Sabbath rules to bludgeon each other. Um, that the Sabbath was made for man. And uh, have you ever been to Israel? You know, they have all these Shabbat regulations even to this day. You've got to get on the floor, the, the elevator stops on every floor. These clocks turn lights off and on, all these rules and things. that is very oppressive at times. And so I just walked the stairs on Shabbat on, on Saturdays. I would not ride an elevator that stopped on every floor. It's just crazy. So, but uh, anyway, so asking us to avoid this legalism. However, I would encourage you to the degree that you're able to not do a lot of shopping and unnecessary things. If the only real reasonable way you can get together with your family is to maybe go out somewhere, that's it's permitted. Um, but I would say, so avoiding excessive legalism, but trying to observe and not contribute to the problem is, is a good thing. So frivolous shopping and thing that we can't, we could reasonably do on another day. Could wait, great, do it. But if you really can't and you got to get it for Monday, go do it. If the restaurants aren't cooking, 
then mom has to cook or somebody has to cook. You have the family over, and it's a lot more work than cooking for two or three ordinarily. That's one thing. The other is gardening. I mean, I love, that's one of my hobbies is planting flowers in the spring and things like that. But it's work. I mean, well, again, here too, um, maybe old moral manuals would distinguish what we call servile work and more academic work, but that's sort of an old school approach. Again, here the church councils avoid excessive legalism. If you find gardening relaxing, that's a good thing to do, you see. Um, the question is to try to avoid very difficult, arduous, sweaty work. You know, um, I don't mean just physical work, but even, let's say you're a teacher. That might be a day not to be doing lots of grading papers, and even though it's technically intellectual work, mm-hmm. and some of the legal manuals of the old days would say that's not real work. Um, uh, but I, I think that at the end of the day, we have to subjectively understand what's work for us and try our best, try our best to avoid a lot of it. To take one day where you're not striving. Try, and, and by the way, on my flyer on the back page, I try to give you the, what's really going on here is to say, look, we're, we're trusting God that if I don't strive for seven whole days but just six days and give one to God, I'll do more with the six days and God is a partner than I would ever do with seven days all by myself. You see, there's an old parable that basically goes like this. There were two, there was a wagon train heading out to Oregon in the old days. And um, they decided that uh, because the winter was beginning to set in early, they needed to travel on Sundays, which they wouldn't have done. Uh, But the camp was divided, so they broke into two different camps. One said, we've got to travel on Sundays or we're all going to freeze in the mountains. And so they did. And the other group said, no, we're going to follow, we're going to trust God. And guess which wagon train made it to Oregon first? (laughs) and all alive, okay? And again, because they rested the horses, they actually made more progress in the six days. You see the idea. So the, the point here isn't so much to um, just simply follow rules for the sake of following rules, but to invite this trust in God that I don't have to strive every day. I can leave some things to God, and I should rest, and God will supply. God will supply. So it's a call to trust. And at the heart of the rule, if you will, if you want to use it, the word rule there, would be that summons to trust. And rather than getting into lots of debates about what's work for me versus work for somebody else, um, you, you know what work. If you find gardening relaxing, I, amen. Senior, God bless you. Thank you for coming this evening. All right. I take Thursdays off. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.